Hello and welcome to the show, and I'm glad you're joining me tonight as we take a ride down Interstate 280 and look at all the technology company logos out the window. Speaking of long drives, if you need more travelling companions, I've got over 140 of them at OneNightInProduct.com, so I recommend popping over to the website and checking them out, or finding us on your favourite podcast app to make sure you're never alone again. Tonight, we're going to be speaking about the difference between being data-driven, data-informed, and data-inspired, and how you can bring that all together to give you the best chance of product success. If you want to find out the three C's of product management, stay with us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Roger Snyder. Roger's a backpacking and hiking junkie and Microsoft alumnus who did his best to make mobiles work for Microsoft with the gone but not forgotten sidekick. You know, from the days when mobiles were real mobiles and had keyboards and stuff. Roger's a fan of sci-fi and says he's a fan of the utopian future painted by Star Trek. And in that vein, he's helping product managers live long and prosper in their careers as a consultant, instructor and VP of products and services at the 280 Group. And it would only be logical if he also had a few things to say about product management in the enterprise. Hi, Roger. How are you tonight? Oh, nice lead in there, Jason. Thank you very much. I love talking about product management in the enterprise. (laughs) It's great to be on with you. It's great to have you here. Hopefully, we'll solve a few problems tonight. But before we solve any problems, start with an easy one, a soft pitch. You are the VP of Products and Services at the 280 Group. Now, I'm sure a bunch of my listeners are well aware of the 280 Group. But for those that have been living under a rock, who are the 280 Group? And what problem do they or you solve? Great. Thanks for asking. So 280 Group is a training and consulting firm, and we focus uh, on empowering product professionals, giving them the tools and knowledge to create products that matter. And we really focus on products that matter to their customers, products that matter to the company's success, and of course, products that matter to them individually. So we're really focused on training and consulting, but all focused on product professionals. So we provide training. We provide self-study courses. We provide optimization programs for for enterprises. So nice to get back to that, uh, (laughs) where a lot of what we do these days are helping companies get better at product management. And we look at people, process, and tools. So it isn't just about, you know, do they know how to do competitive analysis? Is it also about, do they actually have a thoughtful process of thinking about a product from cradle to grave and being able to take that product through those various phases in that life cycle and be successful in every phase? I mean, obviously, that sounds fantastic. And we'll talk a little bit about that process in a minute as well, because I do have some questions about processes. You know, processes aren't always popular these days in product management world. And I can certainly think of a few people that have, that you've definitely heard of that have complained about process people in the past. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But you say, obviously, you're a consultancy and a training company. Uh, How does that kind of split break out? Like, are you primarily one with a bit of the other? Or is it very kind of across the board? You kind of just do everything? We focus a lot on the training aspect because that's where our our clients come to us to get help on improving the skills. But what we actually find is that almost all the time, that training needs to be customized to meet the needs of the particular enterprise in terms of what are they really working on right now? What are they struggling on? Is it getting voice of the customer? Is it is it about how to, to build a compelling business case? Or is it about being more data informed and knowing then how to make better decisions not based strictly on data, but based on, on having the data at hand so you can make intelligent decisions about what to do next. So we start with that training platform of, yeah, let's make sure we understand what it means to be a product manager and what all the skills are that are required. 
but we then also help them improve. And you said that process word, but it is useful to be able to improve, <laughs> have a consistent approach to things. People don't like the word process, but a consistent approach to how they make decisions in the organization, how they get budgeting, how they are able to then also take their products to market, right? No, 100%. But you're talking there about obviously enterprise you just mentioned, and you know, we've got to get those mm-hmm. Star Trek references in. But would you say that you're optimized then for more of that kind of digital transformation, helping companies that are already established doing stuff better and transforming them into something better than they were before? Or are you also have you also got like a, a startup play, like trying to help really early founders get their stuff in order as well? Yeah, we're more focused on on small, medium, and large companies. It's not not so much the startups, but we are very much focused on on the larger companies that are oftentimes they're at that phase where, you know, like the founders are almost always product managers. I mean, I've been at several startups, right? And so founders are product managers. They don't know it sometimes, but that's what they do. (laughs) But when you get to about 100 people and larger, you start having to differentiate roles. And that's when it becomes important to understand what role the product manager can play to bring value to the overall organization. So that's really where we find that the bulk of the need is. And that's where we can go to serve. Fair enough. You've got to make a difference where you can. But out of interest, why 280? I mean, I was thinking 180 for darts or 360 for skateboards and stuff. Where does 280 come from? All right. So great question. I get this question all the time. So it is not degrees on the compass. <laughs> 280 Group is named after a freeway. All right. So oh, there you highway, go. highway 280 connects San Francisco to San Jose in Silicon Valley. And so uh, we often say it, it has been the spine of innovation for many, many companies. So that is where we get our name. Well, there you go. And hopefully you don't get any speeding tickets either. No. But what, does, <laughs> but what does the VP of Product and Services at 280 Group do now? I can obviously imagine what those words might mean. But like, are you building products specifically? Or are you mainly there as a kind of a representative for the art of product management? Like, what does your day job look like? Because so my day job now, and I've been with 280 Group six years, right? So, um, and I've been in product management for multiple decades. I don't want to admit how many. <laughs> but I, I led product management teams for over 20 years in various companies, large and small. And I joined 280 Group because the thing that I, I love the most about my job was bringing up young and new product managers in their skills and seeing them spread their wings and fly and become great product managers. And that's what 280 Group does, right? So I actually joined as a consultant and I was going out and doing the training and consulting on the road for a few years. And then I uh, took a, a full-time job. And as VP of products and services, I'm responsible for making sure that we have the right courses, that we have the right capabilities to help people all along their journey from the first time they moved into, say, project management into product management. Oh. Right? I know, a whole other topic, right? <laughs> but when they first made that transition into product management, all the way to how do they become a VP of product management successfully, and then the whole team growth and transformation that we talked a little bit about earlier. So my job is make sure we've got the right courses, make sure that we have got the other things besides courses. So we now do assessments. We also provide self-study courses so that you, if you missed out on the class with the rest of your cohort, then you can have a new employee just take the self-study course and be able to come up to speed quickly on the same concepts. So assessments and all of that, and then the consulting that we do as well. And making sure that that's all whole product. I don't know if you have another podcast on that topic, but that's another one where (laughs) you've got to talk about not just what's the course, but the customer service that goes with it, the financing options available for it, all the follow-on that happens afterwards. One of the key things we focus on is making it stick. Right? It is a challenge 
to take a training class, you get all hyped up, you're excited, you go back to your office, you want to do all those great things. But then times that enthusiasm peters out. And so we help with uh, organizations that are serious about making this transformation so that we're there as a partner all along that journey and continue to get the sustaining energy with follow-up workshops, follow-up assessments, follow-up coaching, so that people are able to keep going on this journey. So that's what I, what it means when I say products and services. Does that make sense? Uh, that does make sense. And it's definitely an interesting conundrum with the learning space. I mean, there's that's something that I've got an interest in as well for my day job. And it's, as you say, very tricky to try and do things in a way that engage people and continuously innovate as well. So just, just to make sure that you're not just putting the same old stuff out. But mm-hmm. I guess on that, I mean, there are a bunch of other training and consultancy providers out there in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, and I'm sure they all have their own pros and cons. So I guess most of those might say something along the lines of roughly of what you said, like they're all going to claim to do some of the things that you've just said that you can do. So why is 280 Group the best of all of them? So we have two key differentiators, right? One is, is that we aren't slaves to a particular process and we are about what are your particular needs, right? So a 100-person company versus a Fortune 500 company is in a different place in terms of what's next for them to get better at product management. So we will tailor our courses, tailor our processes, tailor the frameworks to meet the needs of where they are at the moment. Uh, so that's number one. Yep. Number two is, is the, the, the depth of our consultants. All of them have at least 20 years experience and they are dedicated to the craft, right? They aren't part-timers. They are full-time uh, employees of the 280 group focused on helping people get better at product management. That is their day job. That's all they do. And they have the experience to draw upon being able to make that transformation and stick with it, right? So like before I took this job as VP of products and services, I helped one company for four years. Yeah. Right. And so I was there all along every time they needed something to help them continue in that journey. And all of our consultants are in that stripe. Deep experience and, and a dedication to the craft. No, that makes a lot of sense and hopefully a bit of a differentiator today. Although going back to that process thing, I mean, I'm looking at it on your website right now, the optimal product process TM, although mm-hmm. seems not to have been updated since 2014. So maybe I have to pay for a better picture with the new stuff on it. But it obviously you're looking at it and it does seem to there's obviously a lot of things in there that you'd recognize and it seems that that's very much like the underpinning of your approach but you're saying that that's really like you can change any of it is that what you're saying it's a starting point right so so the optimal yeah. product process is a starting point and what i emphasize too and I, we still do when we're training is do not become a slave or a zombie to process or to documentation instead use these as the right questions to ask at the right moments in your product's life cycle, and then make the right decisions. I always say, don't delete anything out of the template because six months from now, <laughs> that question may actually be valid. Right now, it isn't valid at all. But six months from now or a year from now, it will be valid. So don't delete stuff, but pass over the stuff that doesn't make sense for your business, but use it as a reference guide to ask the right questions. That's the emphasis. Well, that makes sense, although I do now have this image of like 25 copies of the same PowerPoint slide with different version numbers on the end where people are kind of manually version controlling it. But you know, hopefully we'll find a solution for that at some point as well. Well, well thankfully, we're, we're beyond PowerPoint slides now. So <laughs> you know, we're working in Mural and we're using Asana. There you go. And so you know, those are the kinds of tools that we like to help, help folks 
well, and also all the new crop of great product management tools, right? There, there's a, so much better tools now than when I was doing this even 10, 10 five <laughs> years ago, right? Way better. Oh, yeah. I mean, how could we have gone through a global pandemic without Miro, huh? That's right. Absolutely right. But when it comes to product education these days, there's a bit of a backlash around things like certificates and to some extent, even just training courses in general. Like You get a lot of people out there loudly claiming that you basically can only learn this stuff by doing you know, School of Hard Knocks style. It's not really something that you can get a certificate in. Certificates are worthless. Now, I don't know if you do certificates specifically, but have you got any kind of answer back to these people that basically say that this stuff is kind of useless and that they just have to get a job doing it because that's the only way you can really learn? I think it's a little bit of both, honestly, right? You know, because when I started, yeah. there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of this. And so I learned from the School of Hard Knocks, perfectly on, able to admit that. But I think training is, is an accelerant. It allows you to go way faster and it allows you to learn from the mistakes other people have made. I think, again, that's one of our differentiators is the experience of all of our consultants to be able to say, I've been there and this was what I did well. And this is where I fell flat on my face. And this is, <laughs> is how you get better at product management is by being able to learn from the mistakes of others. So I think the training definitely helps from that perspective. And yeah, I know there's this big debate about certificates and certifications. So let, let, let me be pedantic for one moment and then talk about real world, right? So <laughs> we, we have got um, certificates of completion, just like all of our competitors, right? Yeah, you finished our course. Great. That's different from a certification, right? And so yeah. we, we partner with the Association of International Product Marketing and Management, uh, and they administer a, an independent exam. And it's a two-hour exam in, in, uh, for some of the courses. And that is a much harder and better test of, do you really understand product lifecycle? Do you understand product management roles and responsibilities soup to nuts? So when you pass that exam, uh, we're talking like a GRE kind of thing, it means something, right? Yeah. So now what does it mean? It means that you understand the knowledge. It means that you understand the tools. It doesn't mean that you're immediately an excellent practitioner. <laughs> VP of products straight away. Right. So I, I exactly. <laughs> But that has its place, right? It, it does set like to anybody, it's a differentiator in hiring, especially these days when, when the hiring markets are so difficult. How do you pick out? So when you see that, that certification, not just a, a certificate of completion, but an independent certification, it means they've got a knowledge base. They understand the basics here. That is a differentiator when you're looking at a field of a whole bunch of other people who have also had the School of Hard Knocks. So I think you want both, honestly. Yeah, I think from my perspective, when I'm looking at hiring people, for example, I mean, I'm never going to not hire someone because they don't have a certificate or, or a certification. But sure. I guess at the same time, when I look at it and think, well, look, I'm a big fan of training. I love learning stuff. And, you know, it's something that it's one of my personal values, you know, growth mindset, all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, it's like that. Even the certification is almost like your driving test, like you've passed your driving test. You're allowed on the roads properly on your own now, but then you that the old cliche, that's when you learn to drive, right? And it's, mm -hmm. it's only after you've been rear-ended a couple of times that you actually <laughs> start to understand how this stuff works in the real world. So yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Yeah. But let's talk about some specific stuff that I know you're keen on both personally and with the 2.8 group in general. Mm -hmm. And that's the topic of data-driven decision-making, both making the decisions, but also promoting those decisions around the organization. And I presume by implication, helping to make those stick against potentially skeptical stakeholders. But before we go into some of the details, I mean, what do you really mean when you're talking about data-driven decision-making? 
Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about that, right? So there's there's data driven decision making, which means you're you're looking at data, and it can be qualitative or quantitative, right? It isn't just have to mean that you're looking at a console, you're looking at the output of Google Analytics or oh yeesh, yeah, you know, name half a dozen different tools, right? Data driven can kind of mean you're you're really focused on just making decisions based on data, right? We make a distinction we call data informed. Making a decision where data is a key part of making that decision, right? It does require, I mean, to the earlier conversation, right? It requires that you've got some gut feel, you've got some experience, but you're using data in a meaningful way that you can use to justify and back up. Why are we making choice A versus choice B? And then there's, there's a, what, what was the other one that you were talking about before? Data inspired, wasn't it? Inspired, right? And data inspired sounds like, okay, so like the executive came with one piece of data. And then said we should go do this, right? Well, okay, <laughs> wait a minute. Let's go double check that data, right? So that that's something that's very important in order to make those distinctions. So we emphasize data informed. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I'm just looking at the article on your website now, which uh, obviously breaks a lot of that stuff down. But mm-hmm. I guess when you're talking about your recommendation of being data informed, is that something that you have? your own then framework and kind of methodology around that? Or is that more of a mindset that people just have to have? It is a mindset, but we do provide a, a framework to, again, it's a tool, right? I don't want you to become a slave to the tool, but it, <laughs> it recommends, you know, if you're looking, for example, at a, uh, an application, right? There's going to be a very typical set of key performance indicators, KPIs, that you should think about, right? Yeah. You want to be following, for example, the, the customer journey from awareness all the way through to either purchase or completion, whatever it might be, right? And it, there's just, yes, a playbook for that. And you should follow that playbook. If you are looking at something where instead you have a hybrid product, which is so many people now have, where there is a product that has a, a digital component to it, but it also may be a physical product, then you've got to expand the set of data points, if you will, that you're going to look at. Of course, you want to look at the digital aspects, like if there's a web interface that helps you configure a new... Say you're talking about um, home security, right? You're talking about cameras, right? So yeah, you want to watch how well people use all of that software to set up their cameras and, and, and use them. But then there's also data you can get from the cameras themselves. And there's the fact of whether the user continues to keep the subscription or they drop it in a couple of months because they're not satisfied. So that's an example of multiple dimensions of data. And you also want to bring in actual customer interviews. Spend time talking to real customers, either in focus groups or in interviews, using surveys. So there's just you know, it's a, a big spectrum of what we call data. I want to be clear about that. So what are some of the main reasons that you see or hear with the work that you do the obviously the consultant that you're doing, the training that you're doing, the PMs that you're talking to, some of the reasons that they're not making data-driven decisions because there's loads of books, there's loads of blog posts, articles, podcast episodes, all talking about this stuff now. So surely they would, as long as they're not like brand new product managers or just getting into it, they should probably be doing some of that stuff already. So are there any key reasons that you see that they're just not? Yeah, we see a number of reasons recurring, uh, you know, as we work with different clients for why they aren't being data informed. The first one is they don't have the data. <laughs> so that's one of, one of the challenges. And that challenge, thankfully, even just in the last six years has become no, becoming less and less of a reason, 
right? You should be, if you're talking about software, you should be able to instrument your software. Yeah. Right. If you're not talking about software, then there's all the other things I was just talking about where, okay, yeah, it's harder to get data. Check. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be going and getting that data, right? Another barrier, and honestly, this is kind of surprising in 2022, but is that product managers don't have access to data because the other parts of the organization aren't giving it to them or don't get that they need it, <laughs> right? So like, I, this is common. I have so many folks in my classes and I keep hearing it of, well, yeah, I want to talk to my customers, but sales won't let me. Oh, that old classic, yeah. Yeah, and I'm just like, really? Seriously? And, and so you have to show the WIFM to, you know, what's in it for me for the salespeople to want to have a product manager get in front of their customers, right? So yeah, big bucket category one, don't have access to the data, all right? So you got to tackle that problem, all right? Number two, how do I figure out what the data means? Yeah. And that's where, okay, now there are some skills that you need to apply and tools you need to use to be able to come up and find patterns, find insights, right? That then the data informs a decision, all right? Number three is the hippo problem, <laughs> right? Are you familiar with hippos? Oh, 100%. Okay, right? So the highly important person's or highly paid person's opinion yep. often trumps, right? So that's where there's also a bit of storytelling involved. So actually, one of the workshops that we just completed adds a, a last module. We just talked about, okay, you got to build your business case. What's your hypothesis? What problem are you trying to solve? Go get the data, prove or disprove your hypothesis. But then we added another module, tell the story. And we actually have four different ways to go about telling a story because you've got to not just have the data, but you have to make a compelling argument based upon that, that data. Yeah, that storytelling part is a really interesting thing, actually, the, uh, the whole idea that, you know, you can't just, like, you need to persuade. You can't just put some number. I mean, obviously, you can to some people. Like, if you have some very data-savvy leaders or data-savvy stakeholders, I'm sure you just sit there and say, hey, look at this, and mm -hmm. they'll just go, oh, well, that absolutely makes I'm not, how, not sure how many times that actually happens, but at least in theory, that could happen. But, yeah, that whole kind of idea that you need to wrap a narrative around it, and I think, for me, it's always about trying to tie a thread from whatever it is that your data is saying to whatever the actual outcome and the business outcome and the, the business KPI that that's actually rolling up to. Exactly right. It can be tricky sometimes, but you've got to get it done. So is that what you're talking about when you're then talking about the ability to promote those decisions around the organization? Is it just that storytelling aspect or are there also some other kind of persuasion and negotiation skills that you teach to try and help people get over that hump with maybe skeptical stakeholders? It is multiple. It's all of that, right? Yes, you got to be able to tell a story based on the data. You have to have the data to start with, right? You have to be able <laughs> yes. to make, make, make heads or tails of that data and then be able to make a compelling argument based upon that by telling a good story. But yes, you, you also have to influence and you have to have negotiation skills. And we do talk about those in our courses as well because it isn't just about being great at conducting data analysis. It's also being able to win the day at the, at the end. And, and that requires, you know, uh, sometimes one of the examples I use is you don't want to come to a big boss meeting with everybody around to get your business case approved without having spent time actually speaking to sort of the heads of department around that table ahead of time. It's more work and you don't do it for every decision, but for the bigger ones, it's an important thing to do. One of the other techniques I use is don't have only just the VPs of all these various functions come to that meeting 
but have their subordinates that you actually worked with in the background to come up with this proposal sitting along the sides of that conference room so that they're there to answer questions. Because another stalling tactic is, uh, you know, VP of Dev will say, well, we haven't taken this to ground. We have to go off and do two weeks of analysis. We'll come back to you. No, <laughs> not if the director is sitting right behind them and has been on your team building the, the case, right? So those kinds of practical aspects of how do you get a decision made are crucial also for the success of a product manager. Yeah, I think there's this other part of that, which is the empathy that you need to start to develop for your stakeholders to start to understand what it is that's actually important to them, because it's not always exactly what's important to you, or it maybe doesn't feel like it. So like, we have to assume that everyone wants the same end goal of a successful product, a successful company, but everyone's got their own ideas about how they might get there. So trying to translate things as well, not just making it all about what you think and put it in your language, but actually trying to put it in language in a in terms that resonate with them as well. So absolutely. Feels like that's a really big topic and, and something I think a lot of PMs struggle with, to be honest. And that is one of the one of the things that we talk about is the WIFM. I think I mentioned it earlier, right? What's in it for me? You're thinking exactly. about the WIFM of each of the stakeholders that you're working with around this table. You know, if finance needs ROI, then you've got to work with them on coming up with a compelling ROI case. If sales needs to show that this is going to meet their goal of penetrating a new market, then you've got to make sure you show that the benefits are appealing to that particular market or that there's a competitive differentiator in that new market. That's going to mean, yes, the sales folks are going to be way more successful in that market going after that market because you've got something that sets you apart from the rest of the competition. So just two examples, right? Finance and sales, but you got to go all the way around the table. Uh, 100%. I've got to get inside people's heads, but in a good way. <laughs> but how do you know when to pull the ripcord though and stop looking at data and avoid getting caught up in this kind of analysis paralysis cliche that people talk about? Because, you know, sometimes you've got to take a shot, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So perfect is the enemy of good enough, right? You can absolutely drive yourself crazy with, well, but now, and, and every time you do some research, you come up with as many questions as you do answers. What we identify is go back to the business problem you're trying to solve. And do you now have enough reasonable data to prove that for that business problem, you've got a compelling case to make? And that you've at least thought through some of the alternatives, right? That's another aspect of this is you hate to get caught cold at one of these decision-making meetings by somebody who asks a question that you haven't thought of. So you do want to <laughs> take a broader view, step back. Okay, forest for trees. Have I really thought about all of this? What's the alternative? Could I just go buy this for a partner from some, with somebody else instead of building it myself? Yeah. And sometimes making good strategic decisions about is this a core competency? or not. And if it is a core competency, go for it. If it's not a core competency, can I go get somebody else who already does this really well and partner with them? And that's, that's a valuable approach that can also improve time to market. So you've got to take the big picture look. To get back to your, the answer to your question, take the big picture look. Make sure you've got enough data. But as new questions come up, ask yourself, do I really need to answer that question? Or do I have enough to keep going? Because, you know, we're, we're all product managers are problem solvers. Yeah. And whenever they see something unanswered, they want to go answer it some more. But then you got to always get back to the end in mind. Always get back to that business objective you're trying to accomplish. And if you feel like you've got what you need from that, move on. No, 100%. And I think that build-buy thing is also super interesting. I always like to try and think about it in terms of, I think I called it defensibility. Like, mm-hmm. How much IP are we building versus just building some commoditized thing? You know, 
I don't want to build another login system or something like that. There's so many different ways to build login systems these days or SSO providers and such like this. Just use one of them. I fully, fully believe that anyone that's starting out building their own username and password table should just immediately stop doing whatever it is that they're doing and immediately just go and integrate some SSO provider because Otherwise, they're just going to be ripping it all out in six to 12 months anyway. Absolutely. And since we're talking about data, I I have the same opinion about instrumenting your products, right? Oh, yes. It's it's been done. Just go get somebody else's library and reporting tool and integrate it into your product. Do not write that from scratch. Yeah. Again, you're just going to be sitting there unpicking it 12, 18 months in the future and installing Amplitude or Pendo or something like that instead, which, you know, again, I get it because people don't look at the kind of running costs. They just kind of see the capital expense, right? They don't really look at the at the ongoing mm-hmm. maintenance and the fact that, you know, they've got to keep running that as well as also running the stuff that they're actually making money off of. So, yeah. Absolutely. Make sure you spend your money wisely. Core competencies, right? Exactly. Stick to your core competencies. Core competencies. Defensibility. Got to be able to defend your stuff, not just build any old nonsense. Absolutely. But it's obviously possible to measure quite a lot of stuff these days with some of the tools like we just mentioned, like, you know, we can install stuff, we can track just about everything, we can do live screen recordings, we can obviously do audio recordings now, auto transcriptions, and mm-hmm. pull all that stuff into a bucket. There's so much stuff that we can actually analyze and, and get these days. And of course, one problem is making sure that you're analyzing the right thing. Sure. And the opposite of analyzing the right thing, of course, is basically going down the route of like vanity metrics and mm-hmm. spending all your time analyzing stuff and trying to make decisions off of stuff that isn't actually that important at all. Now, that's a tricky one. Mm-hmm. But do you have any approaches to try and kind of snuff that out and make it so that you can actually make sure that there's actually a meaningful outcome from the metric that you're tracking versus that you're just tracking something that looks good or confirms your own biases? <laughs> right. Um, so let's talk about vanity metrics for a second since you brought up the term, right? I think a metric can be both valuable and it can become a vanity metric if you aren't careful, <laughs> right? So the, you know, the, the typical classic example was eyeballs, which led to an economic recession 20 years ago, right? So it was, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't know how many folks are, if we're talking about a website, visiting your website. It is important to know how many people are visiting your website. It's just not that important relative to how many people are doing revenue generating things for you. So it's only a piece of that puzzle. And don't make it the thing that you like put up on the top of your dashboard and say, this is so (laughs) awesome, right? No, it's only a piece of the puzzle. If it starts to drop, you should wonder why, right? Yeah. Because if the top of the funnel ain't working, then something's really wrong. But it's the top of the funnel is just the beginning of that customer journey. So you need to get down to what are the critical moments that matter along that customer journey? You know, and and I'm I'm kind of making up this problem. But if the problem is, is that you're seeing a a drop in actual purchases, where look at your funnel and see where are people dropping out of your funnel. And that's where you then put a, 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 you know, a a lens, a magnifying glass into that area and say, okay, now I got to worry about that. That doesn't mean that then once you've solved that problem, that becomes a, a metric you always have to track because probably now you've solved that problem, the problem's going to move somewhere else. Yeah. Right? So you cannot just say, all right, I have three KPIs and those are going to be what I track forever. Over time, things are going to change and you're going to have to be agile in understanding where are the things that matter next, 
right? So this, this is where curiosity as a product manager is important and where you don't want to be complacent about the things that you're measuring. Sure, number of eyeballs, it is important, but it becomes a vanity metric very quickly if it's not the thing that is changing in your business. And, and you need to be tracking where are the changes? What's the outcome I'm driving for? Now, I made up this example of I want to get through purchases, right? But whatever it may be, in your particular case, what, what is the business objective you're trying to meet? Or what's the customer delight that you're trying to create? And then figure out how do I measure that successfully? No, that makes a lot of sense. It's all about iterating your metrics as well from the sounds of it. But mm-hmm. one thing you also talked about before this was building a fact base for your product vision, which mm-hmm. to me starts to sound like we're trying to use data to inform our product vision and make sure that that vision is visionary or something along those lines. <laughs> now, we, we have to call out, of course, that not everyone has a product vision or certainly doesn't seem like it. So we have to hope that some people you know, would do anything would be better than doing nothing. But when you're talking about facts and using a fact base for your product vision, I mean, is that just an extension of this, like bringing data in and using that to inform the vision, or is it something a little bit different? Well, well fact-based is another simple sort of framework to make sure that you are looking broadly at the things you need to be looking at. And so I like to use the three C's for your fact-based. What, what's the customer's needs? What is going on in the competitive landscape, market situation, and what's going on inside your company? So you want to be looking at those three things. And so you're going to establish... So like, let's talk about company for a second, right? Your fact base in your company is, what are you really good at? And what are you not so good at? And how do you make sure that you emphasize the good stuff in your product vision, right? Okay, so that's that's company fact base, yeah. right? Competitive and, and more broadly market landscape is, what makes this market that you want to go after really compelling and interesting? Is it someplace where you can differentiate versus your competition? Is it a market that's saturated and, and therefore will be really hard to break into? Or maybe you're already the 900-pound gorilla in that market. How do you hold on to that market leadership? Right? So you've got to look at the market situation, the competitive situation, and know your facts there. And keep track. I have seen multiple times where people ignore, say, a small competitor... And then they, that small competitor catches fire because they were below the radar and suddenly now they're eating your lunch, right? Yeah. There are multiple examples of that here in Silicon Valley. So you've got to keep your eye on the market and the competitive situation. And then number one, and I end with that one because it's the most important, what are your customers' needs? Yeah. Right? And you need data to understand that. And it's got to be both qual and quant, right? I often coach folks to like, go get the qualitative first. What's the story? What's the problem? What's the pain point? What's the delight point that your customers really want? But then return to that first C that matches what I am good at, right? So (laughs) once I find a pain point that I'm really good at, okay, now we're going to start cooking with gas, right? That's going to be exciting to go after that. But you've got to have that qualitative data of the story and then some quantitative data to make sure that there's enough of those folks that it makes sense for you to go after that market and be profitable, right? And enough, people always ask me, you know, okay, well, what's a big enough market size? Well, I don't know. <laughs> if you're selling luxury vehicles like Jaguars, you don't have to sell as many of them, but you got to make sure there's enough buyers even then. Versus if you're selling a Yugo or a smart car or a tiny little car, you know, for a very little amount of money, then you need a pretty big market to be able to make money off of that. It's going to depend, right? Yeah. But that fact base is, 
understanding your customer's needs and being, being satisfied that you can, you can meet those needs with your own strengths and that there's enough of them to make it a good, profitable business. Understanding the competitive landscape and the market situation and understanding your own company's core competencies. Right. So those three C's are what I ask people to use to build that fact base. And yeah, it's data, but it's qualitative data and stories and quant data. It's not just everybody looking at dashboards. <laughs> they can look at a few dashboards, surely. Come on, don't don't ruin it. No, I'm, I, dashboards are important. <laughs> There's just not the only thing. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Well, where can people find you after this then if they want to find out more about any of this stuff? So about data-driven decision-making, 280 Group in general, or maybe see if you've got any T-Mobile sidekicks going spare in the garage? <laughs> well, that's spare in the garage. I still have one right here on my desk. But oh, look at that. That's beautiful. It's fun. Yeah, so roger at 280group.com. Very easy, R-O-G-E-R at 280group.com. One of the benefits of a smaller company is you get <laughs> just a first, a, a first name email address. There you go. You know you're a player when that happens. <laughs> so I'd uh, love to hear from folks. Always excited to help people out in their journey uh, of getting better at product management. It's what, it's what I'm passionate about. It's what we're passionate about. It's what gets me up every morning. It's, it's wonderful to help people solve problems. Uh, 100%. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes. And uh, yeah, hopefully you get a few people heading in your direction to find out more. Excellent. Well, it's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your work and how we can all be a little bit more data informed. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Jason. I really enjoyed our conversation. A lot of fun. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>